I think a really big issue for artists is envy uh, and comparing yourself to others. I mean, I think that's really what it comes down to is not so much, you know, the gross feelings of envy or jealousy, but just the painful experience of looking at where someone else is and then comparing where you are to their journey. Welcome to episode five of the Industry Observer podcast, presented by APRA AMCOS and hosted by me, Poppy Reed. On this episode, I chat to Jen Cloer, the Melbourne musician, songwriter, record label co-manager and founder of workshop series I Manage My Music, which is tailored to assist self-managed musicians. Last month, she released what is arguably her best record yet. The self-titled LP hit number five on the RA chart and with songs about Australia, marriage equality, relationships and despair, I think it's one of this year's most important records. Jen popped into the Abramcross offices in Sydney to talk about the importance of building a community around your business and how to do it. She also chatted about what it was like to watch her partner Courtney Barnett achieve a dream career in music and also her advice for artists who are self-managed or who are looking to become self-managed. Enjoy. Jen Clower, welcome to the show. Hi Poppy, thanks for having me. (laughs) So what you do is not easy to describe you wear (laughs) so many hats for our listeners would you mind describing what it is that you do sure well I guess first and foremost I am a songwriter and performer and uh, I've released pardon me (coughs) four albums now just released my fourth album last one is incredible by the way thanks I have to say I'm saying I'm putting it out there it's your best thank you very much (laughs) it's had yeah it's had a, a lovely reception which is Fantastic, because you often forget that people are going to hear it, you know, sort of just in that headspace of, of making an album and you forget that people will actually want to hear it. Um, but, yeah, so so that's kind of my, my main purpose. And then alongside of that, I also uh, label manage Milk Records, which is a Melbourne-based independent label. It was founded by my partner uh, in business and life, Courtney Barnett, uh, in 2012, And, yeah, it's sort of over the last, goodness, five years now, sort of slowly, uh, very organically grown a profile on the independent music scene uh, around Australia and a little bit overseas. And then I also uh, run workshops for self-managed artists called I Manage My Music, and that's something I probably do three times a year now. Um, And we, we really just look at the best ways you can... DIY, uh, self-release as an independent artist. We look at some of the challenges uh, that artists face in this massive country with a very small population tucked right down the bottom of the earth. Um, And, yeah, that's really kind of what keeps me busy. That last one, that is actually the thing that I find most fascinating about you but you were you met you were self-managed for 12 years is that right correct and yeah. then you teamed up with Nico Byrne and his lookout kids yep. firm um, and you co-manage your career now yes um, how did that decision come about to to co-manage your own career sure well it, it kind of came about indirectly in that I went to Nick and his management team and asked them if they would perhaps provide label management for Milk Records because I could see that a really busy time was coming up for us in the next, I guess, 18 months where we have uh, nearly all of the artists on the roster releasing albums and some of them are pretty big ones that we want to make sure are handled properly. 
and they said, look, how about we manage you? <laughs> Stuff the other artists. <laughs> what are you doing? Well, it was more that I was like, and then I can handle my own release because I was worried that knowing what putting an album out is as a self-managed artist and also trying to manage Milk Records was just going to end up someone was going to miss out, probably both parties, myself and Milk. And they said, how about we manage you so that you can still keep Milk going and do what you need to do? And, uh, yeah, it's been great. It's It was a godsend. Yeah. I think we jumped ahead a little bit because before you partnered with Lookout Kid, you launched this incredible thing called I Manage by Music. Um, can you explain to our listeners what it is? Sure. So it's simply a, a day-long workshop where uh, usually 25 self-managed artists from any point in their career, so you can be just starting out, you can be two albums down, you can be on your first EP, whatever, it doesn't really matter, uh, come together and we just talk about, um, well, I guess the first thing is that I share my story because I think that a lot of people can identify with the challenges and the struggles and just sharing that experience can be really affirming and a lot of people walk away from the day and go thank you for sharing that because I can see the things that I've been doing really well but also the things where I might need to you know pick up the slack or address but I also invite uh, another artist to come in and talk about their experience and I usually focus on something that they're doing really well um, that that maybe stands out from you know anyone else in that field uh, and then I also get uh, industry professionals to come in. So I might have um, someone from a publishing group, um, someone who works at a um, PR company. Um, we also have other labels, you know, because I talk a little bit from the experience of Milk, but we have other labels come in and talk. Um, all sorts of stuff, really. Um, it's It's pretty open as long as, you know, they have some kind of connection to independent artists and working with independent artists I guess yeah. yeah tell me about the birth of I manage my music you know what what kind of what were you going through around that time when you decided to start this workshop series sure well the whole reason for starting I manage my music was because I wanted to find out how other artists in Australia were managing to do all of the things that are expected of you mm-hmm. which is to tour a band to pay everyone in the process you know that's the thing that people don't realize is that you know particularly as a um, I guess a solo artist with a band you have to pay your band you have to pay their flights you have to pay their accommodation uh, you have to make sure that the sound engineer is paid the lighting technician the venue take their fee publicists take their fee then there's the marketing promotion uh, and that's after you've made the album so you've already you know probably paid for you know most of the album making process maybe you got a grant so there's this huge expense and unless you're really playing to sizable audiences around Australia and and really I think by definition 500 to a thousand in each city would be a situation where you'd be in you know in a profit making scenario Uh, unless you're kind of playing to those sorts of audiences, you'll run into debt very quickly. And so it's learning, I guess, how to slowly build a profile and get some kind of satisfaction without bleeding, you know, bleeding, you know, (laughs) debt everywhere. And, And, you know, I had had that experience where I'd 
put out a second album. The first one had received a lot of support at Triple J. The second one was a very different record and certainly not for their demographic and just not having that national broadcaster literally broadcasting, hey, this album's out in the world, meant that my audience probably didn't even know that it was out. You know, half of them wouldn't wouldn't have known. What do you think about that, about Triple J almost... Um, I don't want to say overlording, but it comes to mind. Like, I don't know, I don't think they want to have so the power that they do. I don't think that they think it's fair either. But what is your opinion of how if you don't break at Triple J, you're almost, your reach is tightened? It is. It's really tough. And, yeah, it isn't Triple J's problem per se. I mean, their funding and the whole reason that they're set up by the Australian Government and Broadcasting Corporation uh, is to cater to a youth demographic. And that demographic is 17 to 24, I think. That's the core. Um, And so they do a lot of research into what that audience is listening to and wanting to listen to, and they have to move, I guess, with those um, trends. The issue that we have, of course, is that we don't have another alternative in this country that goes national. And that's the issue with touring is that, you know, there are cities around this country and regional centres that don't have that community radio presence or a really strong kind of grassroots scene. And you just see with ticket sales, you know, those cities where where ticket sales are very slow unless you're a Triple J band, um, that's not fair to say, a Triple J act that is being played a lot or, or an act that's being played a lot by Triple J. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, so, yeah, you know, I had the experience of being played on Triple J and turning up and selling out rooms and thinking, oh, this must be what it's like, you know, awesome. This is, you know. And then, of course, the second album rolled around and it wasn't like that at all. You know, half the audiences were turning up. Um, and, look, it could have been also that the album didn't connect, but I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I just wasn't getting that same kind of support. What do I think about it? Well, I would love to see there be an alternative that was actually broadcast, turn on the radio, you know, analogue, old school situation. But, um, you know, I've written a whole article about that that you can find, I think, online somewhere on Faster Louder where I just addressed why we don't have that. Um, And it has a lot to do with bandwidth on the analogue Uh, networks and mobile phone companies needing that space and just the huge expense that it would cost to actually do something like Double J but in an analogue situation. So they set up Double J which is awesome and I mean really Double J does cater to I guess um, you know probably 25 to 60 you know it's a great you know big audience that it encapsulates but the only issue there is that you know it has to be streamed to be heard uh, and not everyone has that access yeah that's right and I think that's one of the reasons why I manage my music is so incredible because you're teaching artists to be you're teaching acts to be their own CEO to say you know it's not Triple J isn't the be all and end all if you get all of these other things in motion you'll still have a career yeah I mean I think the thing that I really explain to people who are starting out is that you will probably not be able to make a living from your music alone in this country. It is reserved to a very small percentage of people 
And unless you find an audience overseas, which is a very expensive undertaking, people don't realise, you know, they leave Facebook comments saying, come to Canada. And you're like, (laughs) have you got $50,000? Because that's what it will cost me to bring my band to Canada. I would love to come to Canada. We could think of nothing better than coming to Canada. Um, But, you know, I'm only doing my, you know, I've been performing for 12 years now. I'm doing my first ever Europe tour in a couple of weeks. Wow. So it just goes to show you like it is and, – and, and that's because I've not had the support or the team or the funding behind me in the past to, you know, even take that on. So I really do try and let people know it's great to aim for it but keep your day job, keep your part-time job, um, don't go into debt around your music um, – Stay in reality, manage your expectations, keep working, you know, being an artist, creating the best work that you can. But I think it's really like breaking, shattering the dream idea that people have of what it's going to be like as opposed to what it actually is like. Yeah. What do you think the biggest issue is that people come to your audience, the people that come to your workshops? What do you think their biggest issue is? I think the biggest issue is finding an audience and, you know, a lot of people are stuck in that situation where they're playing, you know, fairly low profile gigs in small venues. They're maybe not being paid that much Um, and a lot of them haven't found community and I think community is the key and I really try to drill that into people's heads that, you know, if you're not going out and seeing two or three bands a week, there's plenty of stuff that you can see for free. If you're a parent, You know, at least go out and see one thing a week. Um, Of course, there are obstacles around time and whatever, but, you know, get out into your community. You live, I mean, in Melbourne particularly, you live in a a music capital. You know, it is anywhere in the world. uh, People will talk about the music scene in Melbourne. And it's true. I mean, you can go out any night of the week and see something that will actually bowl you over, which is a rare thing, you know. You know, and, and we're talking about... You know, people making uh, and writing their own music, you know, not cover bands. or. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's really that thing. I, I think that it's safety in numbers. Um, it's much easier on you psychologically if you have a group of people to share the burden with, to share your woes with, to be able to pick up the phone and talk to another artist who will get it, you know, not to isolate. So the biggest thing people do is they isolate uh, and live on this dream that someone is going to discover them. And it's simply not the case. No one is, I, you know, first thing I say is that no one is out there waiting to discover you. You just have to get on with it. People will discover you when you're pulling a crowd and making really great records. And, and you th- think you've already made it. <laughs> That's when you get discovered. Um, and, it, and it, you know, I guess... That's, that's really challenging for people because it means you really have to commit and, and work really, really hard to make those things happen in order for those opportunities to open up. Whereas I think we'd all like to think, oh, I'll just, I'll just record something at home, I'll upload it to SoundCloud and then people will discover me and it's like, mm. The Maybe. song can be like the most amazing, incredible song in the world, but if you don't put it through the right channels and push for it and play live, it's not going to get heard. Well, exactly, yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are a few examples of, you know, bedroom genius that have been discovered, but for the main part, most people have to, yeah, play live, 
build a profile, do all of those things that you need to do. Well, the incredible thing about you is that you've built your own audience, you've built this big community around Jen Cloa, and then you've also built this community around Milk Records, which mm. you run with Courtney Barnett. So tell me a bit about building that community because it's not – it's so important around record labels. I mean, there are a lot of um, indie labels in Australia that have this incredible cult-like following, mm. and I do think that Milk Records is one of them. Mm. How did you build that? Yeah, that was really something I feel that Courtney has an incredible natural ability to connect. So just the way she addressed people and talked to people through social networks was very natural and never intrusive. Um, it was really about attraction, not promotion. There was never any hard sell or desperation. Um, and she really knew how to kind of – well, it's not like she knew how to. She just is very – into hanging out with with community um, and being in gangs and playing with musicians and she she just loves it and she also has a wonderful ability to she's a natural brander without and again she wouldn't go oh I'm, I know how to brand milk records she just like drew her own logo and loves drawing and loves making covers and t-shirts and so it was never calculated, but that's always the way, you know. It's like those natural talents that people have are what people connect with. And then, uh, of course, that extends into her music as well. So it's very much her personality shining through. And what I brought to all of that that um, amazing talent was a little bit of an idea of maybe how to structure it, um, how to keep building on those things, how to take those business steps like slowly getting a website set up and making sure that we did some collaborations and got a proper publicist and, you know, just keeping, I guess, the profile of Milk um, up there, like being talked about, again, never in a pushy way. Um, yeah. Both of those <coughs> elements the Jen element and the Courtney element, they're so important. You know, one isn't more important than the other, I don't think. Yeah, I think, you know, really, if there were any reason, you know, the two of us were to bump into each other in this life, it was it was for Milk Records, which is such a weird thing to say, but it really is true. Like, I think the greatest thing that we have done together is is create that scene in, in Melbourne. I mean, it's also Melbourne-centric and meant to be. Because we're not able to really spend the time to start signing bands from overseas and around Australia and we just won't have that connection where they can just come over to the house and have a meeting. And that's the way we run it is like very face-to-face. Um, and so we're aware that, yeah, it's, it's a Melbourne-centric label but it works. Um, but, yeah, it, it's a great, you know, it's a really natural, easy business partnership and we're, we've never... We've never had opposing ideas around what it should be, which is awesome. We're just on the same really same level. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's her label. I mean, you know, people will say we co-founded it, but I always think, you know, Courtney founded Milk Records and I just helped to, uh, I don't know, kind of give it some foundation. So you came into the fold really early then. 
because I have I've seen you know you, you co-manage it I've seen this in um, written articles or, or you're also the co-founder yeah you know, so <coughs> did you come up with the concept together I know that she had like the label no um, and she had the drawing written as well yeah yeah she came up with the idea and uh, of, of the label and had I think well before we met had been thinking about it um and I just suggested that she go and do the New Enterprises Incentive Scheme, NICE as it's known. Oh, cool. Yeah. Through the Australian Government. It is essentially a year-long grant. I see it as a grant because you don't have to do anything once you've done the training and you've put in your business proposal and then they pay you, I think, fortnightly and it just covers your rent while you're trying to set up a business and it's just that Brilliant. pressure off, you know. So... She set up her um, label through uh, Nice. And I guess that's the kind of thing is like because I'd been sort of doing all of this work around self-management and independent artists and all of that research, I was able to then, and this is the great thing, everything that I was talking about in the workshop that I was applying to my own career, I then used Milk Records as the sort of test model and it worked. All of these things, it, treating Milk Records like an independent artist. So it had to be fully self-supporting, a sustainable business. We didn't go into debt. We didn't borrow money. Um, we had to fundraise. We had to find ways of funding as we went. We had to save money to do anything we wanted to do. There were all of these structures and guidelines. And I just believe that if you start on that footing, then whatever you build... Uh, should be pretty sturdy. Yeah, mm. and it's pretty sturdy now. But I remember, no, I don't remember. I heard that um, when you were first kind of starting out, you had a lot of vinyl orders come in from overseas, mm. and that wasn't easy for you. That was quite an expensive venture, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, again, there, it was a situation where initially. We had to pay for those pressings or artists had to pay for those pressings out of their own money. We were then, you know, a few years on just from saving money um, and putting money aside from the merchandise that we sell on the store, so the Milk logo merchandise. So we've spent a lot of time because that's how we make money. We don't have licensing agreements with any of our artists. We don't take anything on the master. Um so anything that they sell through the store is, you know, 100% theirs. Um, we take a distribution fee for the work that we do selling their items on the store, um, which is a standard 25% just to pay the people who do the mail out and make sure we have lots of envelopes and can pay for the postage and all that kind of thing. Um, but then on the other side of that, we sell a lot of milk merchandise. So your caps, your hats, your... Beanies, scarves, you know, T-shirts, all of that stuff. And this that's where really... This community cult following comes in. This is what I love. Yeah, people are, you know, literally wearing your label as a brand and any any um, artists that you sign, they're going to listen to them without reading up about them because you recommended them. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's really how we fund the vinyl pressing is through selling uh, milk merchandise. So no one is, I guess it's kind of got a very not-for-profit, even though it isn't registered as a not-for-profit, it is a company, but, you know, it has a not-for-profit ideology behind it. So it pays the necessary staff to do the work, but there are no shareholders. There's no one getting a payout at the end of, you know, the financial year. 
Um, there's no, you know, stakeholders or investors. Um, the money goes back into Milk Records and to supporting the artists that, you know, work with us. The Industry Observer podcast is presented by APRA AMCOS, a key business partner to Australian creators. APRA AMCOS is committed to leading the music industry towards gender parity and is championing exciting new initiatives and programs in an effort to grow its female membership and to achieve a higher representation of women overall in the industry. The future of music is a diverse and inclusive one. Go to apraamcos.com.au to find out more. And what's the big goal for Milk Records? Do you want to be um, an imprint label under a universal music group? <laughs> like, you know, what do you see as... You said, you know, you, we're, we're a Melbourne label, Melbourne-based, and mm. um, you run it out of your home. So do you have um, international aspirations for Milk Records? Look, it would be great at some stage to partner with a... Uh, you know, maybe an international distributor or label set up with a distributor if that were to eventuate organically. And it would be great to be able to provide that service for the artists on the label. But really, um, anyone is free to go and put their music out through other labels overseas. You know, we have no issue with that. Um, Or doing partnership agreements with other labels overseas. And, you know, for Australia, I guess it's a situation where we probably wouldn't partner with a major label or distributor, Um, but we may at some point need to partner with someone who can provide sound label services. So we don't have a full-time staff sitting there, um, you know, organising, you know, promo and and making sure that everything's being played on radio and, you know, you're really pushing the music out into the world Um, and that's the next stage for us is really assessing how can we serve all of the artists best on the label do we need to look at partnering with someone possibly um, and what would those partnerships be and how will we structure that and we'd be very happy to move into that model simply because we want to make sure that the music on on the label is heard by by a wider audience just listening to you chat about Milk Records, it's really interesting to me that um, I'm, what I'm trying to ask is I'm interested in whether your business or public persona is different to your personal persona because you are a songwriter and artist first, mm. um, but you also run a label and you mm. also run I Manage My Music. Mm. Do the two, are they different? Not really. I think in the last sort of five years of my life, perhaps just getting older and getting to know myself better. Um, I don't really feel the need... I I don't really feel the need to hide or be super private about aspects of my life or, you know, it's... It's a funny thing. I I don't... I don't know. I, I just think that people love to hear the truth and they love when you stand up and say something honest and... Through doing that, I've just found deeper connection with with people and artists and there's nothing scary about it. You know, I think people go, oh, it could be scary. You know, people might think I'm an idiot or they might judge me or I don't know. But I've really just found that, you know, if you listen to my music, particularly my most recent album where I've had, you know, this four-year gestation period of running a label and 
you know, deepening my understanding with I Manage My Music and you know, really doing kind of like a mini PhD. That album's kind of like the the kind of product of a mini PhD on Australian music, independent music making. And it's all there throughout the record, you know, really just talking about just how hard it is, you know, how hard it is for Australian artists and historically to be heard, to, to get to a wider audience, the huge sacrifices they often have to make to leave family and friends and go overseas for this unknown, you know, outcome. Um, and also watching firsthand, obviously, my partner have this really big experience where an international audience did connect. And deeply, you know, it wasn't a fluke. It wasn't really good marketing. It was a hugely organic, yeah, an, an organic, real connection. And it doesn't happen all the time. And that's what you see is like people will then go, oh, we'll just get a girl and put her in a denim jacket and make her hair shaggy and throw a guitar in her hands and it just doesn't work. Because people can smell, you know. They can smell the bullshit. They can smell the bullshit. And you can just imagine all of the like label moguls around the world going, we need another Courtney Barnett, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and you know, I'm sure they're all coming. <laughs> um, but it's it's a funny thing where uh, just, just being someone who watched that all happen from, you know, really from the very beginning, like she was playing, you know, corner pubs in Melbourne, you know, for a hundred bucks in an afternoon playing to no one to just, yeah, touring playing to 20,000 people in Mexico or something, you know, so. What was that like for you? I know that you talk about her, obviously, on your record. Mm. Um, there's a couple of tracks, Forgot Myself, Sensory Memories, where you talk about the loneliness um, and then shoegazers, mm. uh, what it's like going to gigs with her and stuff. Yeah. Um, but what what is it like going through what you just mentioned, you know, watching her ascent? Yeah, well, I mean, I wrote I wrote a, uh, a keynote uh, which I delivered earlier this year uh, for a women in music breakfast uh, called One on One. That's the name of the organisation that hosted it. Yeah, they're great. And I put up a, um, I put that actually up as a medium post. Um, just so did have a read. read. Yeah, yeah, it's, bril- <coughs> it's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, you know, I really openly address. I think a really big issue for artists is envy. Uh, and comparing yourself to others. I mean, I think that's really what it comes down to is not so much, you know, the gross feelings of envy or jealousy, but just the painful experience of looking at where someone else is and then comparing where you are to their journey. And that certainly happened for me because I'd been making records for, you know, a few years and there's expectation about where you should be at that point in your career and then Courtney, you know, was ha- having all of the approval that I guess I had wished for myself, like immediately, um, to some extent, immediately once she released music. I mean, she'd been working at her craft for a good decade, so yeah. she was just ready, you know, when it happened. She'd Especially done the work. Especially from a media standpoint, it happened quite fast. That's yeah. right, for yeah. Us. Yeah, but she'd been tinkering away, writing songs, you know, which is why she was so good when she put out her first, you know, um, couple of EPs it wasn't sort of watching someone learning how to do it it was someone who was fully realized so yeah you know I went through a lot of of um, questioning around my own worth as an artist and should I be even be doing it anymore is it kind of you know that's what success looks like and you know just those thoughts come up and the feelings that come with them and it was really hard you know it was a really hard time as well because she was away a lot of the time so You've also got this duality of uh, 
feeling really lonely, wanting to be really happy for that person, not really seeing them much, so not feeling uh, terribly stable or connected in the relationship anyway. You know, I kind of look back over that time and I just go, wow, I was really lucky to kind of make it through. We were both very lucky to make it through with our relationship intact. But I'm so glad that I did and I'm so glad that I did the work to address those feelings that came up because everyone's going to have feelings and things are going to happen in your life that trigger and you have to, you know you have a choice to either look at it and address it and get over it and grow up or be a big baby and blame the world and just keep creating more drama and sadness and you know end up being a bit of a battler and it was really hard, you know as jaded jaded artists you know and I think deep down yeah look it isn't fair and maybe you are an extraordinary songwriter but carrying that story around as though you know it's somehow you know as a kind of excuse it's like nah don't waste your time just keep keep writing and if you don't if you're not getting joy out of it then I don't know there's so much you can do in the world and I think that's also the other thing that came up for me was like I love writing and I love performing and it's definitely a big part of who I am but it's not who I am you know it's not everything if I had to stop doing it tomorrow I wouldn't shrivel up and die you know and there's a great question which is like if you were if everyone on the planet disappeared and you were the only person left would you still write songs oh answering that as a journalist I'd be like oh would I just write stories for me (laughs) (laughs) exactly right (laughs) it's like I don't know um would I just sit around and eat because you just all of a sudden it's kind of like well who's going to hear these songs is it for other people yeah I think you're honest art is created for other people to see it experience it hear it engage with it read it feel it you know without that reflection back it's uh it doesn't exist really. I mean, you know, it does. You could you could make this art that would be seen by the eyes of God alone. But, you know, <laughs> I think that's the thing is that, you know, if you're going to make work and release it, then, you know, you're obviously making it for an audience. Yeah. So just going back to what you went through with Courtney's career, you said identifying it mm. and being and dealing with it up front Mm. that was what helped you yeah get through it and yeah what do you mean when you refer to that well I guess it's that thing that you know um it's turning into a bit of a therapy session sorry but you know it's that thing where you I think a lot of the time we suppress our feelings or we don't engage with them or we don't let them have a voice to tell us what we need to hear and what I've tried to do more and more in my life is to go I'm having some feelings around this what is it What's going on? You know, what is this little voice of envy trying to tell me? Because I think the the deepest and the biggest lessons in this life, the Buddhists would attest to this. I'm not Buddhist, but I love reading a lot of Buddhist literature is, you know, you will find the gold in the shadow. You know, you're going to find out who you are in the shadow self, um, in those prickly difficult aspects of yourself that come up in your humanness. And if you're willing to look into that, as painful as it might be at the time, uh, you will get the greatest rewards, you know. And it's true, you know, right now in my life, you know, I'm touring around Australia, I'm playing to audiences as big if not bigger than when I was getting Triple J support. Um, And, you know, people are really interested in the work. I think this album has kind of hit 
a real sweet spot for how people are feeling in this country at the moment. Um, and, you know, uh, I get to wake up every day and, you know, run a label with my partner who plays in my band. <laughs> um, you know, I have this incredibly rich uh, and rewarding life. Had I let those feelings go unchecked and just consume me, um, I'm sure I would have ruined the relationship, probably not written a fantastic album as a result um, and just kind of ended up, yeah, just uh, it would be a, a sort of... Self-sabotaging. Self-sabotaging experience, yeah. And it's like I'm so glad that that, I, that, that didn't happen. I wanted to ask you about um, being a female in the music industry. Mm. What's your reaction when people talk about how you've got this incredible career and in the same sentence they also mention that you're a woman? Yeah. Well, I think it is kind of worth looking at that because it is different for women. Um, There's a whole lot of things, you know, I've been having conversations with men and women about it recently. It's like, you know, why aren't there more women you know why don't we have a woman Nick Cave and a woman Paul Kelly or a woman Joni Mitchell in this country we just we actually don't we don't have that equivalent as far as them being celebrated in the same way and seen as a national treasure in music and oh good old Nick and good old Paul I mean I love Nick and Paul but you know what I mean it's like um I actually wrote this song where I was like um nothing against Paul and Nick um, but if you win it, but if you want to be remembered, then you better have a dick. <laughs> I haven't released that song yet. But <laughs> oh, please do! That's um, a brilliant line. Yeah, it's good. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and it kind of is true. Where you know, I think slowly women are getting earning. You know, I don't know the the kind of same level of respect. Um, but also, I think you know there are a whole lot of things that have gone into. Well, first of all, if you look at the kind of history of music, it wasn't really until you saw those sort of, as far as mainstream, you know, there was certainly a lot of folk songwriters before someone like Dylan, but Dylan really smashed through into the mainstream, didn't he? And then Cohen and that whole crew. Um, But up until that point, you kind of sang covers and you sang standards and a lot of our artists here in the 60s and 70s didn't write their own songs and particularly if you're a woman I think you know it was kind of expected that you were hired for your pretty voice and um, for the way you could sell that song as a woman and what you brought to it your sexuality the way you looked so it wasn't really encouraged um, and, it, and it kind of feels like you know real men I mean real songwriters are men you know and and they write the songs and then the women perform them so it's taken a long time I think for women to really in this country, be seen as great songwriters. Um, also, women have children, and touring is not set up for women with children. It just is not. There is nothing about touring that is sympathetic to the needs of a little baby that needs to be fed and given regular sleep and attended to. It is a man's world. Um, unless you're Madonna or somebody, and um, even then I think you'd struggle, you know, even then if you're flying yeah, around in a private jet, you know. Totally, you still have to breastfeed every two hours. It's just, uh, you know, and and this is not to take away by any means the success of these women as songwriters because they are standalone great songwriters, but if you look at the majority of great 
songwriters, most of them are childless. Uh, Patti Smith left, you know, the industry for 17 years to rear, rear her children. Um, didn't, you know, didn't release any music in that period. Wrote a shitload so that she then, like, totally came out and caned it with Killed these it. amazing books. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's a, I think there's a lot that goes into the story of why aren't there more, you know, women who are celebrated in this country. It's slowly turning around. And I think Courtney Barnett was a really big moment in the Australian story where for the first time we saw a woman from this country being celebrated for her songwriting, not for her good looks, not for how she was making a statement as a pop artist with fashion or uh, as someone who was a dancer and performer. All of those things are totally relevant. I'm not saying in any way that they take away from, um, you know, it's an artist's choice how they want to present themselves. Um, But I think what was interesting about Courtney and she again it wasn't like she went I'm not going to dance I'm not going to wear fashion she's just like oh this is me you know I write songs and here I am playing guitar but the fact that Australia saw the world embrace that before Australia did Triple J didn't play much of her music until it was being kind of you know heralded by Pitchfork and because it wasn't you know it was like five and a half minute Avant Gardner is not like a radio hit it's not a pop song for radio it wasn't for Triple J it wasn't she didn't you know and so again I'm not having a go at Triple J but 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 I think you know Australia was slow you know to catch up with Courtney's success and of course their obsession with her success was that it was happening overseas and that's always been an issue for Australia is that we don't we don't seem to have the confidence to embrace something for being great until someone else says it is you know it's kind of this weird thing where we haven't yet got the confidence to go you know what I'm going to go out and say right here this person's a star whether or not the rest of the world ever realizes it we think they're a star you know they'll wait for the rest of the world to say you're a star and then all of a sudden you're accepted yeah it's that fear of being first no one wants to do it yeah, it's such a weird thing, you know. It's like put yourself out there, you know. Have an opinion; it's great. But anyway, <laughs> but this is this is what's great about you, Jen, and that's what we were talking <laughs> yeah. about before. You know, like you you are at a point in your life where you're comfortable and happy and able to share. You're so open about everything mm. that's happened in your life. I so appreciate that. I feel like I've recently gone through that in the last couple of months. Mm. I turned 30. Mm. Something just happened. My mum mm. and sister said that it would happen and it did. I just don't give a fuck. Yeah. It's great. So good. It feels amazing. All right, I have one last question for you because I know you have to run off and be on the radio. But um, this is a question that I'm aiming to ask all the people that I chat to. Mm. What is your biggest career blunder? The mistake or the gaffe that led to the best outcome for you? Mm. Well, I think the story around I Manage My Music is the story that was both the kind of ending and a new beginning. And the ending was that I had to, you know, I went into debt around my music when I made my second album. Um, I was trying to tour a band. I was trying to do all of these things. Um, But there wasn't really the audience or the demand or... You know, that stuff wasn't I – was, I was pushing beyond uh, what was really going on. And I, th- and I think to some extent you're asked to do that as an artist. You know, it's like, oh, you've got to, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. Oh, if you want to make it, you've got to – and you're like, well, steps. do you? Yeah. You know, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you don't if it's going to set you back. So the first thing I did was I let, let go of that band. Um, I'd made two albums with them, amazing band, The Endless Sea – 
Um, we actually did a Reformation gig to celebrate our first album last year and it was fantastic. We did a couple of shows around Deadwood Falls. Played a mate, like what a band. It was just like, oh, yeah, what a band. Um, and very healing, I think, because, you know, I wasn't some genius that was running a great business, you know, self-managed legend. I was just trying to work it all out and I reckon, you know, kudos to them for sticking around with me for as long as they did. Um, so it was very healing to do those shows and to kind of, I guess it was my way of saying, you know, you really were a big part of my life and I really appreciate your music- musicianship and thank you so much um, for putting those years, you know, on the road and doing all the stuff that you did with me. But yeah, I, I you know, basically let go of them at the beginning of 2010 and was pretty much a solo artist until 2013 when I put out um, In Blood Memory and I got, you know, a new band together. And in that period I started I Manage My Music and I basically looked at my business and went, okay, first of all, you are in business, so you need to start treating it like one. It's not just this art hobby thing you do. You are a CEO. Yeah, and if you want to – I mean, what I could see is like if you want to keep making art, which it seems like you do – then you need to do something different because what you're doing is just leading you into further debt and no one's enjoying it, least of all yourself. I didn't want to ask my parents for any more money. It's a terrible trap that artists get into if their parents are willing, you know, because parents want to help. Um, And so, yeah, I just set up all of those boundaries around, you know, open a band bank account. If you want to make an album for $5,000 and you've only got $1,000 in there, you have to find a way of funding it, whether you get a grant, whether you fundraise, whether you do, you know, campaigns, whatever it is. Um, And I think having those boundaries was the real turning point for me. Um, And and the whole reason why I'm sitting here today (laughs) having this conversation with you um, is that I... Yeah, worked really hard to try and work out if there was a way that you could have a career in this country that was satisfying without going into debt and without being huge, you know. I'll let you know about the debt bit in a, <laughs> in a couple of months though. TBC. <laughs> yeah, get me back in a year and I'll yeah. be like, I bloody hate it, I'm jaded, <laughs> people don't realise how great I am. <laughs> I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> and I bet you it would be even harder to tie you down because you'll be touring overseas somewhere. Who knows? You might have relocated to LA. No, no, that's Never? not happening. No, okay. no, Good. no. I'm a homebody. I love – I don't oh, want to tour that. all the time. That's a terrible life. Anyone who's listening thinking that touring the world is some awesome thing, it's not. <laughs> Going on a holiday to Italy is awesome. Yeah. yeah. But touring is just rugged. Yeah. How good's your own bed and your own pillow? Your own bed, your own pillow, food that you made yourself, you know, all of those things, you know, not flying for 20 million hours in air conditioning and then just like sliding out the other side. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's not for the faint-hearted. You can see why people who have been in rock and roll for a long time look about 20 billion years older than everyone else. Keith Richards. (laughs) Jen, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. It was so fun. This podcast is presented by APRA AMCOS. Did you know, in addition to collecting songwriting royalties for over 90,000 members, APRA AMCOS is dedicated to fostering the careers of music creators through workshops, grants, networking events, and international opportunities. 
APRA AMCOS. They don't just collect, they connect. Go to apraamcos.com.au to find out more.